Hello, we, everyone. We we need new music. We need like surf klezmer music. I will you know? never tire of that music. I will be <laughs> dancing to that as I wake up every single day. <laughs> I'm not totally sure that podcast listeners get the music, and if they don't, they are missing out. That uh, that's right. They they definitely are. All right. Welcome to Radio Cloud Native from Arantis, everyone. Uh, this is where we break down the week's news on Kubernetes, the cloud native landscape, and the wider world of tech. I'm Eric Gregory. And I am Nick Chase. We have an absolute fire hose of news this week from new Kubernetes tooling to Istio to nano services. What does that mean? We'll find out. To AI James Earl Jones. What does that mean? We'll find out. To Stadia, <laughs> to 5G. My head cannot contain it all. It's an ocean of tech news. Is just a firmament of tech news, and it's going to rain down on us all, and, and we'll be flooded. Uh, so we should probably get started, right? There you go. <laughs> let's let's get it out of your head before it explodes. <laughs> so to start off, uh, in in Kubernetes uh, adjacent news, uh, yesterday the official Kubernetes blog published a post introducing a new tool called Q, spelled K U E U E because of course it is, an open source job queuing controller instead of APIs. It's in alpha at the moment, and queue is meant to manage resource allocation to batch jobs in multi-tenant environments where allocating your limited compute resources in a deliberate way is important. So if job A and job B are both running in the same environment, but you want to make sure that job A is prioritized for a certain flavor of compute resource, queue will help you with that. The project maintainers go to pains to note that this isn't muscling in on the territory of components like the scheduler or autoscaler or job controller. And in fact, part of the rationale for the project was that some existing job queuing solutions replaced those components, which Q wants to avoid. So instead, this is serving as kind of a higher level way to conceptualize queuing that utilizes and integrates with existing Kubernetes APIs rather than reinventing the wheel. You can check out the blog at kubernetes.io slash blog, and you can check out the project at kubernetes-sigs slash Q. Again, that was K-U-E-U-E on GitHub. Okay. What else have we got? Well, a quick note for our live viewers. Uh, there's an event called Kube Crash, a virtual event running today and tomorrow, October 5th and 6th. So if you're a podcast listener, unfortunately, you're a little late for it. Uh, <laughs> but if you're watching live today, you might want to check it out. This is billed as a warm-up for KubeCon later this month. Uh, today's sessions are already done. I watched a few of those, and uh, there was some really interesting stuff. I uh, heard about how evidently uh, Chick-fil-A restaurants all are running a Kubernetes cluster. Uh, so they've got edge clusters uh, serving up their various apps that they use to organize uh, you know, the, the, the food that comes out and the managing the drive through and all that stuff. Uh, kind of interesting. Tomorrow, there are talks by folks at Cockroach Labs and DoorDash on scaling transactions for 25 million active monthly users. Uh, there's also a primer on Argo and a talk from Pulumi. You can check out the schedule at kubecrash.io slash program. Okay, sounds good. Eric, are you going to KubeCon? I'm going to KubeCon. Yes, indeed. Uh, looking forward to it. I think it's uh, going to be... Uh, Gonna be John and I there hanging out a little bit, uh, so maybe able to even meet some viewers if y'all are out there. Uh, love to say hi. Well, that's it. Yeah, if you want to, if you want to meet with Eric while you're there, you know, send us a message, and uh, we're always always happy to meet with viewers. So 
go for it. Most certainly. Uh, another quick Kubernetes tidbit. Uh, the project as a whole is shifting to a new registry URL for the project's official container images, moving from k8s.gcr.io to registry.k8s.io. The backstory here is that the original Google Cloud hosted registry has been handling a lot of demand from AWS hosted clusters. So the project maintainers, uh, and this is their words now, quote, are trying to put together a plan to host copies of images and binaries nearer to where they are used rather than incur cross-cloud costs, unquote. Makes sense. The new CNCF hosted registry URL will redirect requests based on where they're coming from. So requests from AWS get served images hosted on AWS. Requests from Google Cloud get served by the images on Google Cloud. And I think that's pretty much the limit of it right now. Uh, I think they were focused on AWS because of the volume, but presumably, you know, same thing will be true for Azure later on. These images are mostly used under the hood, so it shouldn't impact your day-to-day -day usage. Uh, the original k8s.gcr.io address has started to redirect a portion of traffic to registry.k8s.io as of October 3rd, and Kubernetes maintainers are asking users to report any issues they notice related to the change. So basically, shouldn't affect you, but if it does, tell somebody. Let them know. Well, you know, I mean, this, this notion of trying to keep the data closer to the users is sort of the whole idea behind edge and, and all of that. So uh, I, I guess it's not just edge users that need to think about it. Yeah. That'll, that'll be a theme that I think keeps coming up today. Um, so staying kind of in Kubernetes world, uh, Istio completed its move to the CNCF back in April. We talked about that, how Google donated the service mesh to the CNCF. And now the technical oversight committee has voted to accept Istio as an incubating project. The Istio trademark will complete its move from Google's open usage commons to the CNCF. And this has been kind of a long journey for those following it uh, that came after some intercompany tussling with uh, Google having kind of <laughs> broad ownership, but, you know, uh, contributors coming from many different companies. So it's nice to see it resolved. And with Istio squarely in the CNCF fold, it'll be interesting to watch how it drives movement and things like eBPF and Watson integration. Yeah, for a while they were saying that they were not going to come over to CNCF. So it's good that's finally settled. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, along with Knative, uh, both of those uh, found their way there in the end. Yeah. <laughs> Just like, why? Why would you even try? Why? Uh, Google and the question why well is another theme that will come up later. <laughs> True. Sure. Uh, so sticking with Service Mesh, a recent survey by Buoyant may give us some sense of where Service Mesh adoption stands today. According to the survey of 100 KubeCon Europe attendees, 33% have deployed a Service Mesh in production or are close to completing a deployment. Now, what I find more interesting here than the adoption numbers is the reasoning behind those adoption adoptions. 65% identified end-to-end -end encryption as the biggest adoption driver, with the next mm -hmm. highest answer being observability at 41%. Complexity is perceived as the biggest obstacle to adoption, cited by 60% of respondents. And that's not super surprising, given that a lot of folks are daunted by Kubernetes to begin with. <laughs> but you probably yeah. want to interpret these results with some care. You know, 100 people isn't a massive sample, and KubeCon attendees are probably more likely service mesh adopters than a, a more general population. Which which tells you if if a very small group of KubeCon attendees are telling you that it's complicated, it's probably pretty complicated. <laughs> um, yeah, indeed. Uh, but yeah, I think particularly the responses on drivers are, are 
decisive enough to be of some interest. And I'd suggest, uh, you know, that a feature as simple as functional TLS seems to be a pretty big factor here. And that, that's worth noting. Okay. Moving over to the world of dev tooling. Uh, you, Nick, know I'm a sucker for the JavaScript runtime Game of Thrones. Uh, <laughs> you, you know I like a dash of wasm in my, in my stories. So uh, I do, I do. It's it's your metaverse. <laughs> uh, so Cloudflare really hit a sweet spot for me recently with their beta release of Worker D, an open source JavaScript slash wasm runtime. This is a variant of the runtime used by Cloudflare's workers serverless platform, and it's being pitched as a way to serve, quote, nano services oh i can't wait yep where the services they're getting smaller uh so according to the project's github page this means quote splitting your application into components that are decoupled and independently deployable like microservices but with performance of a local function call when one nano service calls another the callee runs in the same thread and process unquote so Worker D runs code as isolates, which are generally lighter weight than containers, and it's also notable for prioritizing web standard APIs like fetch. And so, you know, you might ask why another term? <laughs> why do we need this term nanoservices? Well, I, 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 I will ask that question if we don't get to an explanation that makes any sense to me by the end of this paragraph. <laughs> so I, I think the reason really is that we're ultimately talking about serverless technology outside of the serverless context, right? Cloudflare is providing an open source runtime so you can develop and run serverless code locally or even self-host it. But you can't really call it serverless anymore because there's a server that you're dealing with. It hasn't really been abstracted away. And that might seem to kind of defeat the point of serverless. But the cool thing here and the idea here is that you avoid getting locked into Cloudflare's ecosystem if you want to start writing functions for Cloudflare workers. So it's really kind of setting a precedent and maybe even reacting to a precedent because this is taking a kind of opposite path to what we've seen with Dino and Dino deploy. Uh, the, the Dino JavaScript runtime, you know, it's just out there as a, you know, potential successor to node. And then the monetization scheme for that is Dino deploy where this just gets pushed out onto the edge um, in, in this, uh you know, very, very performant way. Um, so Cloudflare's a little bit taken the opposite path here uh, where they've had their Cloudflare workers serverless uh, platform out there for a while. People generally really like it. And now they're giving you the tools to develop with it locally uh, and to potentially move what you've made for it over somewhere else if you want. So a little bit of reassurance. Uh, okay, I I'm all I'm all good with that. Okay, I'm all good with not being locked in. I'm I am a huge fan of not being locked into anything. You know, <laughs> I mean, I've been preaching no vendor lock-in for ten years. Great. What I don't understand is a you're not really making the services any smaller, so why are you calling them nano services instead of <laughs> microservices? And two, if you're putting them together in the same process, isn't that kind of defeat the whole purpose of breaking them up in the first place? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's going to depend on your use case. The argument I've seen for it uh, really goes to kind of the argument that people make about microservices, right? Is that it's almost as much about the um, the social patterns of the development teams as the um, actual technical patterns, right? So, um 
That is the argument for it. Does it catch on? Does this term catch on? We'll see. All right. All right. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go with that. N- Nika put up a banner that said conjoined twin services. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I've been right. talking for a while. What, what do you have for us? Well, uh, let's kind of jump into uh, telecom. We haven't we haven't uh, talked about that for uh, well, at least on this call. Um, one of the most exciting things about this job is that we get to watch things that were previously seen only in the realm of science fiction become reality. And today we have another one of those stories. So, uh, according to Edge Industry Review, quote: the European telecom firms Deutsche Telekom, Orange or Orange, sorry, Uh, Telefonica and Vodafone and the deep tech firm Matsuko have pioneered a test to make holographic conversations as simple as conventional phone communications, unquote. Uh, The technology takes advantage of the speed of 5G and the low latency of edge computing to create a system in which you would basically use your phone camera to create a 2D video feed that gets uploaded to the cloud and converted to a 3D video feed that's delivered to the other side of the conversation via uh, VR or AR glasses. I don't know word on when this solution will be available to the masses, but um, they're not the only ones trying to make this work. For example, Cisco last year introduced WebEx hologram, which is available to early adopters. Um, The group's already done a pilot and Daniel Hernandez, VP of devices and consumer IOT at Telefonica says, quote, "Uh, we are confident that in the near future, we will be able to offer our customers a new way of communicating using this new holographic technology to deliver a more immersive, virtually there experience, unquote. So um, what do you think? I mean... I'm curious if they'll be able to look to deliver it via like a small disc that you could put into a droid uh, <laughs> and the, the droid could then like carry around to a different. <laughs> it, that could be very useful if you're being shot at, you know, um, you know, and, and you need for your message to be carried a long way. <laughs> I just think that might be important. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's true. Uh, you know, uh, my basic feeling is, do we really need, do we really need that? I mean, is it really an improvement over what we have now? Zoom calls, Com- and completely agree. Things like completely that. Agree. I mean, uh, really, honestly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's been looking for an excuse to to use that crawler. Um, no, I mean seriously though. I mean, yes, it's yes, it's cool. Um and I, and I understand the notion of, you know, the 3D metaverse. I don't understand why I need to have a 3D version of the people that I can look at on the screen and talk to them, but you know, hey, uh what do I know? I think often immersion gets advanced as the the argument for the thing right and i don't know that i want immersion for immersion's sake right i mean like, right. like there are certain media that i might like to be immersed in but um uh, you know a phone call i would you know look at people's behavior on zoom people love to turn off the camera that's, <laughs> like, that's it right they, they exactly want be, they want to be unimmersed unimmersed um, and, and it's purely contextual right i mean uh you know 
for uh, a class that's being conducted remotely or, or a meeting, you, you might expect that uh, for entertainment. You know, someone might want to be there. They're right in the midst of Avatar. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah or, or see, whatever. that's different. Um, yeah, that's that's different. Exactly. You know, uh, you know, if I've been away for a month and I'm seeing my wife, I might want a, the 3D version of her, you know, on a call. But, uh, you know, no offense, Eric, I, I got enough of you in 2D. <laughs> I do not need to see you in 3D. Okay. And I suspect the same is true in reverse. <laughs> anyway. All right. So um, all this brings up questions about the future of how the internet is built. I mean, we're still at the beginning of the 5G rollout. Um, this week, there was news about Nestle and Ericsson deploying the first private 5G network in Latin America, as well as a citywide private 5G network to cover the entire city of Las Vegas. That's just for surveillance cameras and other IoT devices, which, by the way, yes, they did specifically say, um, but also to help with uh, Clark County remote schooling and, and even provide uh, access to uh, for both residents and, and visitors to the city. So, uh, you know, ups and, and downs there. But at the same time, time uh the same way i can't resist a story about the metaverse uh today's telcos are obsessing over it and for good reason uh they feel like they shouldn't have to pay to upgrade the internet to make it possible to fulfill the promise of the metaverse whatever that works out to be in the end because make no mistake in order to make the metaverse work, we are going to have to move unimaginable amounts of data very fast and with very little latency. And that means investment from telcos, which are still bleeding pretty badly from their 5G investments. Uh, according to Light Reading, Verizon's debts have ballooned from $93.1 billion in 2013 to nearly $151 billion last year, which makes me feel so much better about my credit cards um, with just an 11% bump in sales. Uh, meanwhile, companies like Meta, AKA Facebook uh, that will profit from the metaverse are seeing their revenue just, you know, explode. So we wind up in a bit of a touchy position because right now carriers have to treat all traffic the same and that's called net neutrality. Uh, they can't charge you more for metaverse data any more than they could charge you more for streaming Netflix, which is what they were complaining about the last time this came up. Um, they can charge you if you go over a certain amount, but let's face it in this world of unlimited data, people aren't going to stand for that. Um, so Laurent Leboucher, I'm so sorry if I completely butchered your name, Laurent, uh, the, the group chief technology officer of Francis Orange told light reading quote, if we start to deploy many sites, it will have a cost and we need to find a way to monetize that. It cannot just be the operators bearing the cost for free for metaverse providers, unquote. So uh, basically they're like, look, you know, the providers have to, should have to pay to, to upload this content into the network, um, which is something that, uh, does not happen now. And I'm kind of uh, ambivalent about really, I'm a big, you know, I admit to being a huge net neutrality supporter, but on the, at the same time, God, they, they do have a point. You know? So, yeah, I think um, I agree. Um, and I think there's a larger question too, of like, 
uh, how much should society bear the weight of um, Mark Zuckerberg's ambitions for uh, <laughs> horrible looking horizon, whatever people, um, you know, th- for giving them legs by God, <laughs> this would have to succeed and take off for it to actually be an issue. Right. Um, True. But uh, you know, th- among other things, that would be a massive environmental toll. <laughs> um, it, is it True. worth it? Mm, uh, well, I'm shrugging. I think the answer is no, but, <laughs> um, so, you know, so, uh, what kind of responsibility do the organizations who wish to profit off of this idea, you know, bear to the broader society to, uh, to implement it even, um, I, I think it's bigger than just the telcos, but it makes an awful lot of sense for the telcos to be concerned about it, even as I'm typically not like wildly in sympathy with them. And uh, even as you say, you know, I'm, uh, net neutrality is a, a crucial principle <laughs> that needs to be at play here, which I think means, yeah, this is, this is um, something, a consideration that needs to probably take place at a regulatory level, but our, our uh, you know, regulatory bodies equipped to, to do it. Uh, I don't know. That a shrug is yeah. correct there. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly correct. So you know, speaking of opinions, um, <laughs> nice segue. One. You got one. Um, <laughs> the HTTP Archive has released the better part of their sprawling annual web almanac, which is based on a survey of eight million active publicly accessible websites. So the idea here is to get a sense of what technologies are being used and how they're being used on the web. And we've got some interesting insights on technologies new and old. So first off, WordPress somehow remains on the rise, growing faster than other CMSs, while Drupal and Joomla declined. WordPress is just like the endless tide of zombies in World War Z, (laughs) just like pressing up against the big like wall. that's that's right yeah Yeah, it just does not it does not stop it does not Uh, so another technology not complaining about it just (laughs) just observing um so another technology that's declined year over year is WebAssembly. sort of the studies web crawlers only see what's going on client side so here we're talking specifically about client side browser-based wasm utilizations but the usage rate really was tiny the report analysis notes Quote, we found 3,204 confirmed WebAssembly requests on desktop and 2,777 on mobile. Those modules are used across 2,524 domains on desktop and 2,216 domains on mobile, which represents 0.06% and 0.04% of all domains on desktop and mobile correspondingly, unquote. So that's not really surprising to me since the real WASM movement has been on the server side and the report analysis makes a similar observation, noting that JavaScript covers the vast majority of browser-based needs and WebAssembly's greater potential is not, quote, as a niche web technology, but as an entirely mainstream runtime on a wide range of other platforms, unquote. That comes from the report analysis again. Uh, but but pretty fascinating uh, to sort of see the phenomenon play out that the we all know as a thing is is once technologies become entrenched, they keep going for a long time. You know, <laughs> um, people sometimes ask, it, are, are, are we still going to be using Kubernetes in, in five years and 10 years? And, uh, you know, I think you can tend to say it's reached the level of adoption that, yeah, I think so. I think it's, it's crossed that threshold. Um, but, you know, something like WebAssembly hasn't yet if it's going to. Um, and, and, you know, we see that here. 
and we'll we'll see. I mean, look, you can make you can still make a very good living as a COBOL programmer. Right. That's been a bit of a, a meme lately, right? It's, <laughs> gotta gotta learn COBOL. Yes, that's it, man. That's it, man. So um all right. So speaking of things that will not go away. <laughs> After spending months of uh, fighting a lawsuit to get out of his commitment to buy Twitter for $54 and 20 cents a share in a surprising move yesterday, Elon Musk sent Twitter a letter offering to buy the company for $54 and 20 cents a share. So legal analysts theorize that this may be an attempt to settle an ongoing lawsuit before it goes to trial. And that the fact that it's the exact price he'd originally proposed to pay may point to the strength of Twitter's case. Eric Talley, a law professor at Columbia University, explained to The Verge that there was a risk to Musk that if he went to trial and he lost, uh, he may have to pay interest. So instead of paying $54.20 a share, he'd be paying even more. So it looks like this uh, it looks to this complete non-lawyer uh, I do not even play one on TV that he realizes that he does not have much of a case. And that may stem from the fact that his case insisting that he's backing out because Twitter undercounted the number of bots on the service just may be undercut by a tranche of texts that were released last week, showing no discussion of bots at all, but rather the likely real cause of Musk's dissatisfaction for the deal Twitter CEO Parag Agrawal asking him to stop posting negative tweets about Twitter. In addition, a consulting firm supported Twitter's account of the number of bots. And there is discussion about censuring Musk for his use of Signal, an app that auto deletes messages, which for those of you who are not aware is a no, no when you are supposed to preserve messages for legal reasons. So it looks like we're going to wind up with Elon Musk owning Twitter financing for the deal expires in April of next year. A, a, this is kind of the definition of ambivalence. Uh, you know, they say that the definition of ambivalence is when a car goes, you know, a car, your car goes over the cliff with your mother-in-law in it, you know, um, Poor mother-in-law. This, uh, yeah, um, this is this is kind of like on the one hand, it's like, yeah, Elon Musk should, you know, do what he said he's gonna do, and then it's like, oh yeah, that was buying Twitter. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, we should probably have that Chiron again there, Nika. I'm just um, excited that yeah. it's gonna be an accelerant to X. I mean, that's. That's an accelerant text. <laughs> Nika too has folded one has has immediately folded once someone reached started reading her text back to her. She says, "Wait, what is X?" <laughs> uh, this is how Musk framed this. Uh, his his folding was uh, that you know buying Twitter, uh, having that social media platform was going to be an accelerant to X, the everything app. Uh, so the everything app. Yeah, the everything app. It's coming. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let's um I'm gonna start justifying all my mistakes by saying it's an accelerant to X. It's an um, accelerant to X. There you go. There you go. Okay. Well, speaking of mistakes. Oh good. Google there Stadia. Go. Um so <laughs> Google shuttered its Stadia game streaming platform slash console slash thing this month. A move that was theoretically a surprise, but was painfully foreseeable pretty much as soon as it was announced. 
for <laughs> those keeping track, that was two and a half years ago, which in Google years is actually a rich and fulfilling life for a product. <laughs> we wouldn't usually spend a lot of time talking about gaming, but this has some lessons for the wider world of cloud. I mean, most literally, Stadia was a swing at cloud gaming. Games were to be streamed to you the same way Spotify streams you a song. And I say were to be, it happened. They, they achieved it, and the technology was really pretty impressive. Uh, but the more interesting takeaways are about cloud lock-in, trust, and Google itself. So, you know, first of all, as TechCrunch put it very bluntly, quote, Stadia died because no one trusted Google, unquote. This is one of those cases where an entity has built up a very damaging reputation at this point based on a series of decisions that might have made financial sense in the short term. They've started and stopped so many projects that it was abundantly clear right from the start that if you spent money on games for Stadia, you would not be able to play those games in five years. It, it was kind of obvious. Here we are, two and a half years later, and according to TechCrunch, subscribers will have access to the games library through January 18th of next year, after which point it will shut down for good. Yep. There you go. <laughs> so Less than five years. So at the end of the day, this is software as a service, right? And that requires some degree of trust with that degree varying depending on the service and the user and the investment that the user is being asked to make. And here it was clear that Google did not understand its audience. You're talking about a consumer base where a large number of people are really focused on performance of games. I mean, I think of myself as someone who plays games pretty casually and I still, you know, want something to run at 60 frames per second instead of 30. Um, and here Stadia is offering subpar performance even if it was technically impressive how little latency they could achieve. And you're also asking the user base to lock a reasonably large investment at the consumer level into a proprietary platform. And if you're going to ask all of that, you really have to offer something in return, especially if the audience is already invested in a different model, which most of them are going to be. And it was just never clear what the advantage of Stadia was supposed to be. So I think even though this is a consumer product, it does offer some broader lessons for people who want to provide software as a service, you know, in, in, in our kind of bigger cloud world, right? Uh, you, you really have to cultivate an audience specific trust <laughs> um, and, you know, make a more deliberate calculation on that, that kind of triangle between what you're asking them to sacrifice, what you're providing them um, and, you know, what, what kind of investment you're asking them to make for that exchange. It's true. That is that is very true. It's, uh, uh, and I don't. And and you're right. Trust is trust is paramount. Really, kind of in, in in everything that you do, especially in the the as a service world. So, all right. Well, you know. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, we've, sorry, Stadia. I was doing a lot of snarking, but also like it's it's a bummer. It's a bummer it for a bummer. for people who've invested in the platform. It is a bummer for the the folks on the Stadia team. I think you know many are apparently going to be transferred to other teams, and I hope that works out. Uh, you know, uh, but but there are going to be people who uh, who who aren't, uh, and and that sucks. Um, so yeah. You know, and and people who and people who worked on games for the service, absolutely. You know, this is why it's so hard to get content for a new service because nobody wants to nobody wants to put themselves out there if they're not sure the thing's still going to be there in five years. Like you like you say, yeah. <sighs> All right, so Eric, uh, I know you are also a big Star Wars fan. 
same same as me. Uh, you've probably heard that James Earl Jones is retiring as the voice of Darth Vader and Indeed. man is 91. So you really can't blame him, uh, which of course brought up the issue of who could possibly replace James Earl Jones for future appearances of Darth Vader. And the answer is drum roll, please. James Earl Jones. <laughs> yes. Going forward, whenever we see Darth Vader in a new Star Wars production, his voice will be created by an AI version of James Earl Jones from a Ukrainian company called Respeacher. Uh, and of course, uh, when fans heard that, they freaked the heck out because that's what they do. <laughs> um, you know, I account myself among those who went oh my god that is never going to work um but actually we've already heard it apparently vader's lines in the recent obi-wan kenobi series were actually produced by respeacher and nobody noticed so that uh that bodes pretty well i did um, not know that that's cool yeah it's yeah it's true i i did not know that either in fact uh, after i while i was doing the research for this when i found that out i was like wait a minute and i had to go back and listen to it and i was like well, son of a gun <laughs> um yeah so it, it does bring up an interesting thing um the reason that they did it that way uh because i'm sure that jones would have happily come back and spent two hours recording for some insane amount of money uh is that because the series takes place between episodes three and four uh they wanted a younger sounding vader similar to the original star wars uh, you know, a new hope rather than the older, deeper version that you would get today. Um, and for you non star Wars fans out there, don't worry, I'm done geeking out on that part. Let's just focus on the technology. Um, because in other news, there was, there were also reports that Bruce Willis, who has retired from acting because of a medical problem called aphasia that prevents him from being able to, uh, speak or communicate, um, has sold the rights to his likeness to a Russian company called Deep Cake, which makes, well, deep fakes. Uh, or rather, they're a production house that made a video that depicted Willis through the use of a model trained on his Die Hard era films. Uh, though after that announcement, both Willis and Deep Cake came out denying the actual deal. So not sure exactly what's happening there, but it definitely points to the the technology but honestly this is not uh this is not new the recent star wars prequels had digital versions of a young princess leia and the late peter cushing's governor tarkin uh and the recent top gun maverick film used the technology to bring back val kilmer who uh has lost his voice to cancer um but now let me add one more layer to all of this. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about uh, text to image programs such as Dolly and mid journey. And I've been obsessed with it ever since. Uh, well, of course the next inevitable step uh, is text to video. So it's not publicly available yet, but meta AKA Facebook has uh, opened up a small trial of a text to video service. It's pretty rudimentary, but basically it works by taking your text prompt and creating an image. And then of course, because we've all been feeding Facebook millions of videos all these years, it knows exactly how images, you know, and, and objects generally move. So it can create a video of that object that has been created. Uh, again, still pretty rudimentary. 
Uh, but you know, it seems pretty fun, but of course the question is now, how long will it be until you can basically write a screenplay, feed it into an AI and get a finished movie? That's what I want to know. So there you go. And, and I'm putting this out there right now. So nobody can patent it because now it's prior art. So, so there you go. <laughs> Unless you patented it like what? 12 months ago. Tough. Okay. Anyway, but uh, yeah. So I, I'd be interesting to see how that goes. I want to, I want to go back to the um, just very briefly the Star Wars angle when you went back and uh, watched the the Obi Wan scenes, what did you make of it? Uh, like, like, did you feel like you could tell that it was uh, AI driven speech? I got to tell you, I did not. I really did not. I thought, well, you know, I didn't notice it the first time, but you know, now that I know, I'll probably be able to tell. And I could not. the The voice was really good. Now, I I will. I mean. We know that facially we're still kind of in the un- uncanny Kenny valley, valley. Yep, yep. but the the voice worked. The voice totally worked. Yeah. Um, spoilers for for Obi Wan. So if anyone wants to go away, they can oh, yeah. do so. Uh, one, two, three. Spoiler warning expired. Okay. Um, I you know, I thought the scene where we had Anakin's mask smashed off and it was kind of going back and forth between him and the Darth Vader voice was actually one of the more effective effects uh, in that entire show and one of the more effective moments. So to to, to learn that, that you know hinged on the success of this technology in, in part, I think is really cool. I, this kind of resurrecting dead actors thing I'm um, super ambivalent about. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yes. But, I, you know, in the scope of this story, I think Darth Vader's voice specifically is a pretty good use case for it. It's already like somewhat digitally inflected. Um, uh, you know, it, it's something where I, you know, we, we almost have like do a Darth Vader voice apps already. Uh <laughs> You know, it, it seems like a decent use case for it. I, I agree. And, and of course, you know, we immediately, the, the moment that it was released, of course, you, you get all the memes of people pointing out that, uh, you know, Darth Vader, you know, was more machine than man. <laughs> and yeah. now we have his voice being more machine than man. Um, you know, it took about 35 seconds. Um Oh, uh, yeah. So uh, Nika says, uh, my two senses of Vader sounded fine, but Luke's re-speech line sounded so bad in The Mandalorian. Um, you know what? I think the problem there was not so much that the, his voice sounded terrible, but looking at the Uncanny Valley face just throws your brain off altogether and you can't accept anything just rips you right out of the the whole story i think a funny yeah. thing is you know that they've clearly they've clearly reacted really hard uh to the recasting of Han, young han solo like not going over super well uh and said okay we're never going to recast anyone <laughs> again but ultimately it's sort of the same problem like their their reach exceeds their grasp on bringing these old characters back to life as young people one way or another like yeah you, you can't you can't recast han solo and also cgi is only going to take you so far <laughs> yeah it's true although i i will say i will say that there was a 
massive change between the first version of Luke Skywalker that we saw in the Mandalorian and then the second version that we saw in, in the book of Boba Fett. Big so, time, big time, yeah. um, you know, there, there was, there were massive progress. Um, and, and I expect that that will move really fast as, as things uh, go on. Things are moving so fast. They just are. Uh, pardon me while I have a small existential crisis. I think that I think that's a good pivot. We'll go from our, our media corner to uh, our, our existentialism corner. <laughs> very true. Very okay, true. We, we've got to get out of our existential crisis. We, yes, we, we need some sort of go. absurdity to help. Absurdity. Us. Let's go to wackadoodle. All right. Let's. Okay. Well, let's go with the most absurd thing that I have right now. Okay. So. Um, this week saw the season premiere of the new season of Saturday night live. Um, and as part of that, uh, they did a sketch parodying the Charmin bears. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's a cute little sketch. It's, it's funny. Um, but there was a little bit of controversy because, um, in many markets when Saturday night live was replayed on Peacock right next to that sketch was an ad for what? I got nothing. Uh, okay. The Charmin bears. So something about toilet paper bears. I, ah. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Nika's too good. Nika's for too good for bathroom jokes. jokes, and I would like well, to believe the I'm same not. with myself. I was holding back. As a, <laughs> I, I'm not. I will tell you, it was a pretty crappy situation, so to speak. There you go. Well, the answer is, uh, it was a commercial for Charmin. The algorithm accidentally placed a commercial for Charmin right next to the sketch parodying the commercial for Charmin. <laughs> Seems kind of on the nose. <laughs> Just a little bit on the nose. Yes. So um, yes, people were not happy. Charmin was not happy. Lauren Michaels was not happy. <laughs> Nobody was happy about that, but you know, what can you do? Um, all right. Let's see. Um, Let's see. Uh, all right. So a piece of spyware was, was recently found in, uh, it was found in an unexpected place um, in an attack on governments in the Middle East. Where was this spyware found? My brain is just going Netflix, but that's not a complete joke. There needs to be like two or three more like components <laughs> that's bolted. And my brain's just like Netflix. That's all I've got. Uh, Nika, however, is quicker on the draw. Subvocalized by Darth Vader in the Mandalorian. That's that's very good. You you both are kind of close in that. Um, it was it was on a publicly available uh, place, but this is kind of a little bit obscure. 
Um, I will tell you that uh, it uses a technology called steganography. Hmm. Do you know what steganography is? This is this is one of my favorite obscure technologies. The word's familiar, and I feel like I should be able to sum it up from my brain. Well, let me not. tell let me tell you and with, our. It's like court reporting, right? Or, or uh, no, no, okay. that's None. that's um, stenography, maybe uh, stenography. That's yeah. stenography. Yes, I missed that. I missed that one, Nika. I was just kind of trying to think what the word for stenography is. No, steganography is when you take the digital file uh, hidden in the footprints of a stegosaurus. Actually, you're very close. <laughs> you are very, very close there, Nika. <laughs> Let me explain. Um, steganography is when you take a digital file, such as a uh, an image, and you encode in the uh, in the digital file that is that image, um, like a message or other code or such as that, and so the perpetrators of this uh, spyware hid this um, hid this spyware in in an image. Okay, that could be uh, that. Then they could take that image and it wouldn't be caught as spyware or anything like that because it's not an executable. It's just an image. Yeah, so they put that on. A, Sorry, go on. Go, go on. I'll, I'll ask the question. Again. So, the, so they put that on a publicly accessible site that they knew would be access, accessed by uh, their, their intended targets. What was your question? Oh, so, so I'm aware of this uh, uh, encoding into images, but um, what, what do you need to execute the the code that's hidden there? Like presumably just like, it's not like a standalone execution environment. Uh, I am. I am going to pr presume that. Uh, I. I don't know exactly how you. Uh, how you would activate this. Uh, this particular attack. Right. Um, but. Uh, but yeah. So there's. Uh, there obviously there are tools for it. But the wackadoodle part of the story was what the image was that they hid it in. Stegosaurus. Close. They Steal, hit it. Stealing Nika there. Uh, they, Nika's answer. They hit it in a very old Windows image. Is it the green field? So you know, <laughs> practically. Uh, yeah. Here we go. This is. I'm gonna. I'm gonna share my screen for a minute. Uh, so you can see the the very old share screen. I, I'm sure everybody hates when I do this because <laughs> to listen to me try and find the right thing. Uh, here it is. This is the image. So you see how old this Windows logo is. Can't see it at the moment, unfortunately. Oh no! Oh, there, yeah, there, there we are. There we are. Yes. Ah. Yeah. So you can see how old that Windows logo is. So um, yeah. So that is uh, so that is that one. Um, let's see. Okay. Um, uh, this week on Twitter, uh, I'm sure that there were other places where this came up, but I found this on Twitter and it just astounded me. Um, it is a video of a plant doing what? 
video of a plant doing what? Uh, doing the the Rickroll dance and and song and dance routine. Uh, no. However, that's just as likely. Um, this plant. I'm I'm just going to show it. I'm just going to show it because I mean that's that's the best way at this point. I can't even explain it. Uh, here we go again. Sorry, guys. There we go. This is a plant controlling a machete. I, I, this is, if there is nothing else wackadoodle in this world, this is it. I'm the particularly bad gardener. Like I have ambitions to, to grow things, <laughs> but I just do a really bad job of, of watering the plants, keeping them up. And, and this terrifies me for that reason. <laughs> yes. I mean, obviously the plant is, is not, you know, doing this in any kind of mindful way i hope uh because i'm also i am not only a bad gardener but my lawn gets extraordinarily overgrown and um now i am thinking about the old doctor who episode with the crinoids that take over everything and oh yeah that that would not be good everyone's anyway for the ai revolution but it's the plants it's the plants yeah. That's it. It's the plants you have to watch for. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I do, I do think this is fascinating. I mean, you know, it's obviously just, you know, being controlled. The, the robot is not being, is not being held by the plant. It's just, but it's interesting to see how many electrical signals are um, produced by a, a simple plant. You know? That's awesome. It is awesome. Okay. Let's see. Um, get rid of that. Bring this back here. Um, yeah. And then the, I only have the only other wackadoodle thing I have this week. It, well, no, I have, I have two more. I have two more. Uh, one is not so much to guess. Actually, they're both not so much to guess. Um, the idea that, um, bone in, that, uh, tooth implants can be used as a hearing aid how about that that is a, a cool notion that is a very cool notion um yes and uh also uh you know what i'm gonna hold this one for next week because i got a couple of art related ones i'm gonna use next week and that's all i got that's all i got uh nika's got a video uh queued up for us but before we get there um, let us, let us close. Um, I want to thank, uh, everyone on my behalf and on Eric's behalf. I want to thank Nika, our, our super producer. I want to thank all of you who joined us live and everyone who downloads us on the podcast. I want to remind everyone that we are available, uh, first of all, live every Wednesday at 1 PM Eastern time on LinkedIn. Just go to Marantis, um, uh, the Marantis page and, and you will find us. And also uh, please find the radio cloud native podcast on all of your favorite podcast apps. Uh, and uh, that is it for this week, I suppose. Uh, Eric, anything else? That does it. 
All right. So then we will close with whatever this uh, fabulous video that uh, Nika's got ready. I have no idea. Oh, good Lord. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> <laughs>